Well, good morning, everybody. I was, I'm was i so used to the scriptures being read before I preach, because that's kind of how we do it at our church back in St. Paul. So I was waiting. I'm like, who's going to read the scriptures? But I guess we're just a little more high church than y'all, which is fine. It's just <laughs> different strokes for different folks. That's fine. So I'm, I'm new here. Uh, I'm, actually very, I'm actually really old here. I used to uh, go to Evanston Bible Fellowship and... Um, through the years, got to be in leadership and did some college ministry with Northwestern University students and then eventually became uh, your first church planter. And then I moved back to my home state of um, Minnesota and uh, that's that's where uh, we we came from today. So my wife is here as well. I am married. I have uh, have four kids that are eight, six, four, and two, which maybe that was the reason I was singled out for the topic today. Uh, because maybe people thought I was an expert, which I'm not, about the topic today. But we were talking about uh, the seventh commandment, which is thou shall not commit adultery. So obviously we have to talk about sex today. And so with, I have a bunch of disclaimers to do before I even get into the, the text today because of, because of that. But I want to give you a quick update for those of you that have been following our church plant, uh, when I, last time I visited, I believe it was the last time I visited, it was during the 25th anniversary of Evanston Bible Fellowship. And at that time, it looked like we were going to buy a property. And I remember being super emotional about it. It was a very big thing. And I was sharing with you guys that we were about to buy a property. Well, that did not happen. We lost the property that we started in. And we had to move out, and much like you guys are doing right now, I had to rent another space on a Sunday morning, and we've been doing that the last three years. However, at the very last day of 2015, we closed on that same property. The ministry that ended up buying it uh, folded, and it went back on the market, and we, we purchased it. And so now, uh, as your firstborn child from Evanston Bible Fellowship, we, we get to own property before you. How about that? Uh, so I think I have a couple of pictures for you if you want to look at it. So that's the building we bought. It's an old church building built in the early 1900s, a Methodist church building. And uh, there we have another picture, I think, of the inside right there. And that was our first service back in the sanctuary. So a lot uh, to rejoice over for, for getting uh, uh, that property back. We are very, very thankful. And like here, we're, we're an urban ministry in Minneapolis-St. Paul between the two downtowns. And there's several small liberal arts colleges that we do ministry uh, with up in Minneapolis-St. Paul. So that's a little update from me. So the disclaimers. We're talking about sex today, all right? We're talking about the seventh commandment, thou shall not commit adultery. Um, this is hard for a Minnesotan to do. We're, we're a humble bunch up in the Northland, and this is, this is the type of topic that's enough to make me say oofta several, several, several times just to, just to get through this. I mean, we, we're very modest. I mean, just we, we have to be modest. Just think about the weather up there. I mean, we dress modestly just so that we don't die in Minnesota. And so this is, this is an interesting topic uh, to be selected for me. And so let me begin with some, some disclaimers. You might be thinking to yourself, man, I'm just feeling very awkward right now that you're going to talk about this. And it could be worse. Just think of all it could be worse. You could be talking in front of several hundred people about the topic. That would be worse. That would be, that would be more awkward, right? Uh, if you're, your parents here and you still have your kids with you, I'll leave it to your judgment, whether it's appropriate for them to continue to stay in here. I would say that I'm keeping my content around PG. Might be PG-13 if it was the 50s, but, but today, by today's standards, it is, it is, it is PGs. I'll, I'll, use, I'll use technical language, and I'll assume that you know the definition of the language that I'll be using. So I'll leave it to your judgment, parents, if you have kids here, whether they should stay in here. 
Sex and sexuality is such a deeply personal topic. And it's a topic that makes culture wars. And this is a sermon, one sermon, and it's going to have more of a laser focus on relationships in general and marriage and sex. But there are so many other important topics that you could talk about with this topic because it's divisive, it's controversial, all those types of things. When we, we did the sermon series in our church, and we did um, 10 weeks on uh, sexuality, uh, theology of sexuality, and we got into theology of body and attraction. We addressed same-sex attraction and gender and, and sex and marriage. So that was 10 weeks, and this is one sermon. So keep that in mind that there are a lot of things that might be implicitly addressed that I just won't be able to get deep into because it's just a one-sermon deal, an overview of a biblical theology of sex is really what this sermon's going to be about. So, this sermon's not the final word. It means that I'm going to give you a framework, an overview that will help you carry on the conversation in your ethos communities and perhaps in, in other venues, but, but use this as a starting point to continue to wrestle with this topic. All right? With that in mind, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we might delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the beauties of living in an urban environment is you get to encounter just on the streets of your own city all kinds of interesting things. And right before Easter last Saturday, I was going to a birthday party of a a kid of a member in our church, and uh, I saw another friend of mine was pulled over and parking and and unpacking his kids to go to the party. So we went, my wife and I, to to wait for him and to walk to the party together. But as we're waiting there, uh, on a bike, somebody bikes by us wearing a Santa outfit. Uh, a young, young man wearing Santa outfit. This is right before Easter. He seemed to be confused about the season. And I'm thinking to myself, because in situations like this, you just, you, I can't help but say something. Like, I needed, I needed something clever and witty to say to this guy because he looked ridiculous uh, wearing this. And I couldn't think of anything. And my, my, my friend was on top of it. And he said, hey, Merry Christmas, buddy. And then he, he looked at us like we had said something wrong, like we offended him about about the reality of what he was wearing uh, right before Easter, this, this Santa costume. And I'm just like, hey, buddy, like, don't get all offended. You're the one wearing this thing, like, as if you don't want attention drawn to yourself. You're wearing a Santa outfit. Don't give me your snotty little look because of that. And I don't know why he was wearing it. Maybe he was a hipster that was trying to display irony. Uh, maybe, maybe he was a college student who just ran out of clean clothes. I'm not sure. But when you do something like this, you stick out a bit, all right? That's just the way that it is. You stick out a lot. And one of the things I'm thinking about the topic today is that the Christian worldview concerning sex has gotten to the point that it sticks out like that. It's gotten to the point that it's odd. Now, many of you may have been Christians for a long time, and you don't sense that pressure or that, that reality in our cultural and historical moment but uh, around us, uh, many people who are not familiar with the, the worldview of Christianity and, and our views about sex, now it's about as weird as a college student wearing a Santa outfit riding a bike 
right before Easter. And the sermon today, my goal is not to dress up the Christian worldview in something more presentable, but my goal is to be honest about it, to give you a little bit of the framework of what the scripture and the gospel uh, uh, say about this topic uh, so that you can continue to wrestle with it yourself. So here's my main point. I want the Church of Jesus Christ to embrace a countercultural view of sex for the sake of the gospel. I want us to embrace a countercultural view of sex for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to unpack that point in five different ways. The first point will be the point that sex is good. Point number two would be sex is broken. Point number three, sex has boundaries. Point number four, sex is a bodily act. And point number five, sex is not ultimate. And all of those will start to reinforce the point of us embracing this countercultural view of sex. So let's start with the first point then. Sex is good. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. And then you skip down to Genesis 1.31, and it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. We are created with bodies. We are created with bodies uh, that have uh, two different sex, male and female, that complement each other in a unique way. And as, as the, the scriptures are unpacking this reality, it says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, there's a broad sense that whether you're married or not, whether you're, you're celibate or maybe you have intimacy, that you still are able to fulfill that commandment just simply by multiplying the image of God in converted believers. So we all fill the earth with the image of God and the the image of Christ by making disciples. But very specifically, obviously, that verse is talking about a man and woman coming together in marriage and intimacy. And the scriptures said before the fall that this is good. There's nothing gross about it. There's nothing to be embarrassed about that this is a good thing that God has created. The other thing that we find in the scriptures is that uh, the scriptures not only affirm sex to be good, but sex is also celebrated in the scriptures. You look at a book, an entire book, like uh, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, and it celebrates the romance of sex. And it's interesting, the book never even mentions pregnancy or multiplying and filling the earth. It doesn't even mention it. It just celebrates the romantic view of sex. So I'm going to read a little bit from that text and just keep in mind that for his historical moment, this this was hot stuff, all right? This was very poetic. He's writing to a woman to let her know how much he values and affirms and is attracted to her. So for, for a woman, an ancient woman, this would have been great. Uh, so keep that in mind. You'll see why. So this is what he writes. How, how beautiful are your feet in sandals? Apparently he likes a foot in Birkenstocks. You see that? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter? Your rounded thighs are like jewels the work of a master hand. 
Your navel is a round bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. We'll skip down to verse 9. I'm reading from Song of Solomon, chapter 7. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. And I will climb that palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. My goodness, right? O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Well, I need a cold shower. So that's in the Bible, all right? So it's celebrating this romantic view of sex. So the first point to be made is that sex is created to be good, and Scripture even celebrates sex as a romantic and intimate reality. But obviously, that's not the experience of humanity, that sex is only good, and that sex is to be celebrated. And that brings me to the second point. Sex is also broken. Genesis 3 happened, and sin shot through the reality of sex and broke our entire world, not just sex, but all things in every relationship. It's broken marriages and friendships and relationships between co-workers. Every single relationship in our entire world now is wrecked by sin. One of the ways I think about this is that our world is now out of tune. And humanity in our rebellion decided that we wanted to turn the pegs of the reality in this world. And in such a way, when we turned the pegs on that string, it got it out of tune. And now things are just not the way they ought to be. So sex is impacted very tragically and, and realistically by the reality of sin and the fall. So the Bible is therefore also full of stories of the reality of just how sin has impacted this relationship and this act of intimacy. We no longer use sex to glorify God or to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the Ten Commandments obviously is unpacking those two great commandments. And one of the commandments is don't commit adultery. Don't cheat on your spouse. And then you go into books like Deuteronomy and other portions of Exodus, and it goes even into greater detail of trying to hold back the damage that uh, unjust actions associated with sex have produced in our world. So there's all these laws against and about adultery and incest and fornication and prostitution and sex trafficking and lust and rape and abuse. These are our realities that are part of our world. And the Bible is clear that this is not okay, this is broken, and this is not good. Sex is now broken. Three ways that you can think about how this impacts our reality is relationally, sex is now used... Um, oftentimes to damage relationships between one another, used for selfish reasons. And so there are relationships that need reconciliation. There are relationships that are damaged because of the way that sex is used for selfish reasons. There's, there's, there's ways that your neighbor is hurt by the destruction of sex. For example, single moms having to raise children by themselves because the child's dad only was after one thing in that relationship. And once he got it, he left, and now she is raising the child by herself. The God of the Bible says that's not right. 
So sex isn't just something that's between you and your own person, but it impacts others around you. And most of all, it impacts this mirror and this theology that God gives us, because I'll get to this later. Ultimately, sex and marriage and every relationship points to a true and better relationship and a true and better act of intimacy, and that's our intimacy and relationship with God. And so when sex is being abused, it starts to give an inaccurate picture to the world of who God is and what he is really like. So therefore, both in the way God created marriage and sex to function and also continues to reinforce that reality, that brings me to my third point, and that is sex has boundaries. Sex has boundaries. I remember a question that I received when talking about this topic back in my church where um, a student asked, uh, why essentially is the Christian faith so prude? Why, why does it have these boundaries, and why does it say things that sex uh, is designed and flourishes the best within the realm and relationship of marriage? That just seems like Christians don't like to have any fun. And maybe that's something that you wrestle with, or maybe you're a new Christian, or maybe you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, and you're thinking to yourself, this is, this is part of the weirdness of Christianity. Why limit this act of intimacy between two people? So sex has boundaries, and the reason that it has boundaries isn't because the Christian faith lacks fun, but it has the boundaries in place in order to increase the fun and to increase the flourishing of intimacy within the proper relationship. G.K. Chesterton once said, The more I consider Christianity, the more I am found that while it had established a rule and order, you could say established boundaries in certain things, He goes on, the chief aim of that order was to give room for the good things to run wild. So he's saying the boundaries and the rule and the order exist so that the good things can run wild. One of the ways to think about this is if you go to a park, whether it's an outdoor park uh, in the sun and and, and, uh, maybe by the lake or maybe you go to a water park, these, these places, in order to be safe, have rules and boundaries. I go to a park in my, in my neighborhood, and it has, uh, typically has fence around it because it's an urban neighborhood. The streets are busy. It wants to keep people in, especially kids from running out into the streets. And there are certain things that you can't do on slides or merry-go-rounds or whatever. And the rules and the boundaries there exist not to damper fun, not to suffocate fun, but in, to increase fun. Because as soon as your child runs out in the street, it could get not fun real quick. And so that's the point that Chesterton is making. These boundaries exist not because Christians are prude. The boundaries exist because God created these boundaries so that true intimacy and, 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 and sex could really flourish in the appropriate relationship. But this will impact, and this, this theology also impacts not only marriage, as marriage being the the appropriate boundary in place for sex to flourish, but also this causes other relationships to flourish as well because it takes off this almost cultural expectation that even in your friendships, for example, that true intimacy and companionship must lead to sex eventually. Because God also values other relationships. If you read the scriptures, it's not just that marriage is the only relationship that God values. God values and has created friendship. God values and creates, creates this, this environment where we go to work and we have colleagues and coworkers and those relationships are also important. Those friendships can be 
also important. We have relationships between parents and children. So all these relationships in Scripture would say is not a relationship that should be sexual. And the reason for that, again, isn't to uh, suffocate those relationships, but rather those relationships flourish better when that expectation is not placed on them. There's a um, a New Testament theologian and uh, a writer named Wesley Hill that I often uh, read on this topic of of friendship. He wrote a book called uh, Spiritual Friendship, and he himself is a gay Christian who is committed to a life of celibacy and is seeking relationships and deep companionship and friendships that are not sexual. And writing from that vantage point, he talks about how culturally, when there's always this expectation that friendships, in order to be really, really intimate, to find the one, have to go there, that it often, it often suffocates, again, the ability to have deep friendships. So one example that he gives culturally of this reality is this is why uh, you've heard of romantic comedies, what he calls bromantic comedies, are so funny. It's funny because of, of this, this assumption that deep relationships have to go there. And so a bromantic comedy is these two guys that become friends. And there's this rapport between the two of them that kind of sense like, whoa, that's, are, they, are, they, are they going there? Like, is this, is this relationship going to start getting intimate because they're, they're touching each other and joking around in a certain way? And Wesley Hill says that that's one of the realities of our current culture is that you can't even be affectionate with a friend in an appropriate way without it being questioned that, oh, it has to go there. That's clearly where the trajectory has to go. And so he says that this constant expectation that deep intimacy and and many different relationships has to be sexual in nature actually does not lead to relationships flourishing and friendships with your colleagues and other relationships such as that. That's why the scriptures put boundaries on the power and intimacy of sexual relationships and reserves that act of intimacy in marriage. The next point I want to make is that sex is a bodily act. Sex is a bodily act. Now, this seems like a very obvious point, but, but stay with me. The way that the Bible uses this in an illustrative way for the life of the Christians is actually very profound. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, Paul is writing, All things are lawful for me, that's in quotes, but not all things are helpful. Quote, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So what Paul is writing here to this, this church, this community of believers, is a belief that had developed that the physical doesn't matter. The things that you do with your body and the physical realities of the created world do not matter. Only, the only thing that matters is the spiritual realities. And so since only the spiritual reality matters, what I do with my body doesn't matter. Like, God doesn't care. All things are lawful for me is another way of saying, if it feels good, do it. But he is going to push back against this reality and says, and says this, this theology that this is me and my body or that my body and my physical world doesn't matter is not a Christian worldview. It's a dualistic worldview. The Christian faith is a very much a physical faith. It deals with things like food and sex and property because it cares about this world. It wants to redeem this world, not just spiritually, but it's going to be a new heaven and what? New earth. We are the Christian faith of creation, incarnation, resurrection, and the renewal of all things. 
So then Paul goes on and starts to argue why the physical matters. He ties it to the resurrection, showing why God cares about the physical. He ties it to the reality that God's people are a temple of God, and what we do with our bodies matters because the Spirit of God dwells in us. But the most vivid point he makes is in verses 15 through 17, which read, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. One of the issues he's dealing with uh, in terms of uh, the prostitution piece is that in his day it was, it was popular for pagan faiths to you go to a place of worship and there were, there were women there, temple prostitutes, that you would have sex with. And he has people in his congregation that are doing this because of the theology that I just said. They believe that what I do with my body doesn't matter. And so that's what he's pushing back against. He's pushing back against the horrors that of his day of sex trafficking that even some Christians were participating in. But notice the vivid way he, he illustrates why this is a bad thing. I don't know if you're following, but he talks about our membership and union with Christ that we are one with Christ in such a way that we are part of his body. We're a way that you can think about the imagery he's using, that we're the, the organs and limbs of Jesus Christ. And the point he's making with that is since we are members of the body of Christ, what we do with our bodies is a reflection of what Christ values and how he is, is, is longing to treat other human beings. And so when he says, never... Uh, make your member of Christ and turn it into a member of a prostitute, he's using a very, very, and not to go there very specifically, if you, uh, you should be picking it up at this point, very vivid example of why this is bad. Because it's essentially communicating to this temple prostitute that Jesus Christ, because I'm part of his body, is okay with this act. And obviously the Christian faith would say, never. Jesus would never treat a woman that way and use her for those types of selfish ends. And that's why in the text it says, never, never would Jesus do that. The other thing that I want to say about this verse before we move on to the last point is in verse 18 it says that every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. Again, reinforcing the physical nature of this act, but some people might use this verse to say that essentially almost get to the point that sexual sin is the unforgivable one. That is, this, is, this puts it in like a category that this is, this is really, really bad news if you've had sexual sin in your life, whether, whether you've done it and used uh, sex for selfish reasons, or maybe you have been violated in some way by somebody else's sin. And then you go to a verse like this and it says, is it hinting that like I'm unlovable now? That there's something about what I've done or what has been done to me that's really, really bad? And I don't think that's what the verse is saying. Sexual sin is not the unpardonable 
sin at all. What I think the verse is saying is that sexual sin is simply unique or exceptional. It's unique because touch and sex are specific ways that your body communicates to other people whether you love them or you're using them. So you have to have a theology of body when you think about this Christian. The physical world matters. Your body matters. What you do with your body in this life also communicates something about your relationship with the living God. This text in 1 Corinthians 6 ends with this um, verse. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is not your own. Jesus redeemed you. Not just your spirit, but your whole person. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, everything now belongs to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And how you live now and how you treat other people with your body therefore communicates something about your faith and Jesus himself. That brings me to my last and I would say the most important point of this sermon. Sex is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate. I already made the point that sex is good, it should be celebrated, there's realities of sex that have, have wrecked this world and our experience with it. The gospel, I would say, brings good news with this point. That sex may be good, and sex also might be broken, But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what he's accomplished and what he's revealed about who God is and his relationship with us, we know that sex is not ultimate. It's not the ultimate experience. It's not the ultimate pursuit that we should be striving for. It's not ultimate. God is. Our relationship with God is ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. It points to something better. Our union with God in Jesus Christ. That is what is ultimate. We think about the doctrine of the Trinity and how God within himself between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has a deep intimacy and commitment to that community. And one of the things that the gospel is saying is that you're brought into that love, that divine love and that divine community, because that's what you're made for, is to be loved by God and to be known by him and to be in covenant with him and to experience intimacy with the living God. So the Old Testament and the New Testament has no problem using marriage and sex as a signpost that points back to the true and better relationship and the true and better intimacy found in God and Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. This comes from Ezekiel 16, verses 7 through 14. This is how the prophet talks about Israel's relationship with God. He says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. So she's no longer a girl. Israel's no longer immature, but she's grown into a woman. Yet you were naked and bare. It's it's talking there about the vulnerability and need of help in this cultural context. Verse 8, when I had passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garments. This is an intent to marry. That's the culture expression being used there. He intends to marry her. So he spreads this garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. So this is the formal commitment for God to marry Israel. And you became 
mine. It goes on and continues to talk about this relationship in very intimate and very personal terms. And obviously it's talking about marriage and it's talking about intimacy within marriage, but this, this passage is not being crude. It's saying that this ultimate act, act of, of intimacy within the realm of marriage is pointing to something better and greater, namely Israel's relationship with God or God's people relationship with the Lord or the church with Christ. Then you go into Ephesians 5 and that's the same point, that marriage is something is pointing to something better, that marriage between a man and a woman is pointing to Christ's relationship with the church. And then you go to Revelation 19, and it talks about how heaven's like a marriage reception, a marriage ceremony, and a marriage party where there's wine and there's dancing and there's drinking because this is a reality of a union that we're now celebrating as history is wrapped up. So why is this such an appropriate metaphor for our relationship with God? When you have a relationship with God, through his grace, you encounter a relationship so intense and so deep and so loving that that is the best earthly analogy to describe it. But since it's true and better, it's something that even transcends those realities. Our relationship with God, to be clear, is not sexual in any way. It's a metaphor that's pointing to something that's greater than sexual intimacy. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, the happiness which God designs for his higher creatures, that's us, is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and woman on this earth is mere milk and water. What he's essentially saying there is the best experience, even in marriage, the best and most pure experience of intimacy in sex is like just an appetizer, to the main course of intimacy and love and deep union that we experience with God in Jesus Christ. That's why I think the gospel is good news for those who are single and those who are celibate and those who have never experienced sex either by choice or not by choice. It doesn't matter. Because I think there's a cultural message that sometimes comes at you that says, since you haven't experienced that, you haven't truly lived as a human being. But the gospel would say, no, even if you haven't experienced the earthly metaphor, if you've experienced the, the thing that the metaphor is pointing to, it's better anyway. You've experienced something better than sex. You've experienced something better than marriage. That this is what the whole thing has been pointing to. And that's why the Bible all across the board just values and affirms the dignity of singleness and celibacy as a good thing. There's nothing wrong about it. This isn't a second-class finish to marriage. This is a good and awesome thing that the Bible still affirms. This should be good news to those of you that are married and your sex life is struggling. Maybe you have health issues or you're not able to engage in intimacy what you, like you have been and there's a struggle there. And if, if, if the gospel comes in its full force, it roots out the idol that that's all that marriage is or needs to be and it says there's still something true and better that, that you as a husband and wife can point yourselves to. And as you struggle with sex, sexual intimacy in marriage, it's not the end. It doesn't define you. Look past the metaphor into the reality. And then some of you might be here and you have experienced terrible, terrible evil because of sexual brokenness in this world. You've been abused. You've been wrecked by somebody else's unjust 
and sinful decisions. And what I want to say to you is that's not the way it ought to be. You are loved with a love that's indescribable. And there's an intimacy available to you that's far greater than, the, than earthly intimacy and earthly sex. There is grace for you to come and be drawn in to a Father in heaven and into his Son who would never treat his bride that way. Sex is good, but it's not ultimate. It points to something much more beautiful, much more glorious, much more intimate and intense and deep. And that is the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.11, after listing this list of vices, and some of them being sexual, immoral vices, says this to the church. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want the church, and I think my prayer for EBF, the prayer for Trinity City Church, that I pass the prayer for the church globally and throughout all times, is that as people throughout every generation continue to be racked by the sinful implications of how sex is used in this world, I pray that, I pray that the church becomes a safe community for them to be in. That we don't just say what the reality and the purity of sex looks like, but we also emphasize the grace that's available in Jesus Christ and that this becomes a safe place for refugees who have been racked by a broken world with a broken view of sex. And there's likely people here this morning that are really, really wrestling with this topic right now because you are refugees in this world and you have been racked by the sinful reality of how sex and, and those types of things are used by others. I pray that this is a place of grace, that this is a place that exalts something and someone who is better, that will give you a depth of relationship and love that you have never experienced before. His name is Jesus. And he died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead. And he loves you with a relentless, faithful love that will never, ever, ever fail you. Embrace this countercultural view of sex for the sake of of the gospel, and for the life of the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the world that you've made. But it's hard, Lord, to be sojourns and exiles in this world because this is not our home. And we're constantly reminded of that with the brokenness and injustice that we sometimes face and some of the ways that we even contribute to that reality in this world. And I pray, Lord, that as these realities relate to this topic of sex and marriage and intimacy, that we would point beyond the metaphor and even see the metaphor in its purest form and how it describes the indescribable and intimacy is far greater and a love far greater than any human relationship or any act of intimacy could ever provide in this life. I pray that we would see Jesus. I pray we would see a relationship with him as worth it, worth laying down our life for, 
worth giving up everything so that we may attain it. All to the glory of your name. Amen.